The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association of Anatomists. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, let's talk about sex. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional, nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning into today's episode, Let's Talk About Sex. In recent years, there has been growing understanding that the binary differentiation of biological sex into male and female is not always that cut and dry or dichotomous, but more a spectrum. Today, we will be discussing the genetics and anatomy surrounding this topic. I have a great interdisciplinary team to talk about sexual development and disorders of sexual development. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourselves? Hello, my name's Dr. Georgina Stevens. I'm a medical practitioner who works primarily in education. Hi, and I'm Associate Professor Craig Smith. I'm a teaching and research academic in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology here at Monash University. G'day there, my name is Chris, and I am an interested community member. I want to acknowledge that there currently isn't really a consensus as to what term we should be using here. Some of these terms have been more or less popular amongst different groups and throughout history. Intersex, DSD, disorders of sex development. There's also a way to describe it sometimes as differences of sex development. Presently, there doesn't seem to be a term that is universally acceptable by all stakeholders. And indeed, some of these terms may be viewed as offensive by different groups. At present, the medical term used by the International Classification of Disease, that's the body that determines how we name diseases, they use the term disorders of sex development. I think despite this debate that the most important thing here is to use the terms that an individual with such a condition is most comfortable with and to be aware that there is ongoing discussion in this area. Going forward in this podcast, we're going to stick to the term DSD, but acknowledge that there are other equally valid terms that could be used, and indeed that these may change in the future after this podcast is released. Let's get started by talking about biological sex differentiation. We know that being male or female is determined by our DNA. Can you please explain this? I'll answer that, Chris. So uh, we have in all of the cells of our body chromosomes, and humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes, so 46 chromosomes in total. And those chromosomes carry thousands of genes. The genes are made up of DNA. And amongst those chromosomes, there is one special pair of chromosomes called the sex chromosome. So girls or women have two X chromosomes, and uh, men or boys have an X and a Y chromosome. And they're called sex chromosomes because they determine our sex. So an individual that is XY is male, and an individual that is XX is female. Just to confirm, whether we have XX or XY chromosomes determines male or female sexual anatomy, yes? In most cases, but it's more about what is on the chromosomes that matters. It's this concept of genotype versus phenotype. 
Genotype is what is visible in our genes. A phenotype is what is visible to our eyes. A good analogy would be a computer versus code. The code is the genotype of the computer program. The code carries all the instructions of how that program is to function, but if you look closely, it's really just a whole bunch of zeros and ones. The computer then takes these zeros and ones, and they interpret them to become a computer program, maybe like Candy Crush or Google Maps. So what goes in, that code, comes out very differently, the phenotype. How the program appears to us is the phenotype. The information going in would be the genotype. The DNA is converted to very complex structures and molecules, which produce a phenotype. So what you're saying, Michelle, is that the whole process involves a number of genes across many chromosomes that involve quite complex molecular pathways. Exactly. So multiple steps to come up with the anatomy that we see in the phenotype. Right. I've heard that in embryology, this is an area that can become quite confusing. How do human sexual organs develop? I think the most important first step is to clarify the differences between male and female sex organs and also to clarify some of the terminology around this concept. It's important for us to differentiate between sex and gender. Sex refers to the genetic and anatomical genotype and phenotype of an individual, whereas gender refers to the social and cultural concepts or constructs, and sexual orientation is who someone is attracted to. There are male and female equivalents for each organ, right? Yes. There are sex organs both inside and outside the pelvis. They both start as similar and associated structures. This concept is known as homologs. And by the sixth week of gestation or development within the womb, the fetus has a set of indifferent gonads and genitalia. Inside is the reproductive tract. The reproductive tract for males and females starts with a set of tubes or ducts, which are actually tied tightly to urinary tract development. This is evidenced in adults by the close anatomical relationship of gametes, or sex cells, and urine output. In males, semen and urine both pass through the urethra, while in females, the openings for urine output and the vaginal canal are in close proximity. There's two sets of ducts that are really important for this development. During fetal development, until about week six, we have both sets of these ducts, known as the Wolfian duct, which primarily will lead to reproductive tract that is male, or the Malarian duct, which is primarily going to develop into female reproductive tract organs. You may have also heard these sets of ducts referred to as mesonephric and paramesonephric ducts. Those are the names that are used when we don't use eponymous names or names for structures that are named after usually the person who discovered them. So the paramesonephric ducts are known as the malarian ducts, whereas the mesonephric ducts are the wolfian ducts. What determines which of those sets of ducts is maintained is actually on that Y chromosome. And that is the SRY gene. So SRY is a gene located on the Y chromosome, so it's present in males. During embryonic development, the SRY gene lives on the Y chromosome and it's activated and it induces the embryonic gonads to form testes. And once the testes have formed, they start secreting the male hormone testosterone and that masculinizes the ducts that Michelle referred to and masculinizes the brain as well. So it all comes back to that SRY gene located on the Y chromosome that sets in train a whole series of processes that result in testis development and male development. 
And if the embryo, developing embryo is XX, therefore there is no SRY, no Y chromosome, the gonads form ovaries instead and female development occurs. And what's critical is if that SRY protein is produced, you also get production of anti-malarian hormone, and that'll cause degeneration of that malarian or paramesonephric duct. Whereas if you're XX, the mesonephric duct just naturally degenerates. As we just heard, the indifferent gonads, which will form either the ovaries in the genetic female or the testes in the genetic male, they actually both descend from the posterior abdominal wall. But ovaries only descend to the pelvis, while the testes, to ensure proper sperm maturation, descend into the external sac known as the scrotum. That's actually because for adequate sperm production or spermatogenesis to occur, the temperature in the testes needs to be about three degrees lower than the rest of the body. So having the testes somewhat outside of the body in the scrotum enables the temperature for the testes to be a little bit cooler compared to if they were inside the abdominal cavity like the ovaries are. Once fully developed, a sperm will travel from the reed testes of the testicle into the seminiferous tubules back inside the pelvis where they receive additional support fluids from the seminal vesicles and then travel through the prostate out into the urethra. Again, the same structure which connects to the urinary bladder. For females, much of the maturation of the egg occurs in the ovary and then they must make the long trek through the fallopian or uterine tubes to the uterus. If within these fallopian or uterine tubes a sperm is present and is able to fertilize the female gamete, or the egg, then the fertilized egg will implant within the uterus. Otherwise, it will be shed unfertilized along with the uterine lining each month during menses, or a period. That tells us about the reproductive tract, which is mostly inside. But what happens to the external, well that is, the outside genitalia? Interestingly, as we've touched upon a little bit earlier, a developing fetus, genetic male or female, outside appears phenotypically similar up until about week five, post-fertilization. During this indifferent stage, both male and females have a genital tubercle, a swelling at the front of the external genitalia, and urogenital folds on either side of the opening connecting the inside of the fetus to the outside. Just lateral to or further towards the outside of these urogenital folds, there are labioscrotal swellings. Each of these components will differentiate into male or female external genitalia. That testosterone we talked about earlier is converted by an enzyme, a different type of protein that acts on other proteins to change their shape, into what's called dihydrotestosterone, or DHT. Dihydrotestosterone plays a big role in development of typical male genitalia. In order to affect development, DHT needs to both be adequately produced as well as function normally. If DHT is functioning normally, the genital tubercle will grow to form the phallus or penis. In females, the genital tubercle remains smaller and will form the glans clitoris because there isn't DHT present. The outcome of this is that the penis and the clitoris are homologous structures and thus receive the same innervation and blood supply. DHT does a lot of things, including inducing the urogenital folds to zip up and form the shaft of the penis, allowing the urethra to be internal or inside the shaft. In females, these folds remain separate and become the labia minora. Thus, the labia minora and shaft of the penis are also homologous structures. 
In males, the labiascrotal swellings grow, also zipping up to create the scrotal sac we talked about earlier. The testes then descend within them. In females, the ovaries do not descend into the labiascrotal swellings and stay separate, becoming the labia majora. So again, the scrotum and labia majora are homologous structures. All of this, remember, is that hashtag embryology matters. And in case you wanted an additional interesting fact, there is within the prostate a remnant of the uterus known as the prostatic utricle. But then how do our X and Y genes contribute to this development? So Michelle mentioned previously that the gonads and the ducts and the external genitalia are similar during our embryonic development for both males and females. And then the direction that they take, either testis or ovary in male versus female, depends upon those sex chromosomes that I mentioned previously. During our embryonic development, if we are XX, we develop ovaries. If we are XY, we develop testes. And I mentioned the SRY gene. That's a very important gene located on the Y chromosome. It kickstarts the whole process of male development. It induces the gonads during embryonic stages to form testes. And once they form testes, a certain cell type within those gonads, those testes, Leydig cells, produce testosterone, and that converts the ducts into the male mode and the external genitalia into male via conversion to DHT. And it also masculinizes the brain. What about the females? At the moment, we have no evidence that there's a a switch on the X chromosome that induces the ovary. So we think that most of the genes that are involved in forming an ovary in XX embryos or fetuses are located elsewhere on those other chromosomes that we have. And so there are a number of genes there that are involved in ovary formation. And because there's no SRY, as I mentioned previously, there is no testis development. And so the ovary develops instead. Estrogen and female hormones are released and the body is feminized. But that SRY gene in the males, it expresses or activates a protein that turns on other genes in the pathway. And so this is a a hierarchy of activating genes and proteins, quite complicated, that results in testis development. And similarly for the ovary, except the switch there is located not on the X chromosome, but on other chromosomes, what we call the autosome. To summarize, Clearly, there's a difference between genetic sex and phenotypic sex. In either case, it's a complex cascade or series of events which involve a series of genes, proteins, and hormones that leads to the internal and external sex phenotype. In the case of disorders of sex development, or DSDs, also called intersex in some cases, some aspect of sexual development doesn't necessarily match the sex chromosomes that we talked about earlier. In the case of 46XY DSD, an individual is genetically XY, so theoretically genetically male, but either the gonads or the external genitals uh, may not develop in the typical male fashion. In the case of 46XX DSD, An individual is genetically XX, so theoretically genetically female, but the gonads internally or the external genitalia can be masculinized due to changes or mutations in genes involved in those pathways that Michelle mentioned. And highlighting the significant difference between genotyping sex and phenotype of sex. Now that we have talked about what usually happens for sex differentiation, can you please explain what intersex is? 
One other aspect I should just point out is uh, brain sex. And so in a typical individual, if they're XY, the testosterone that is released into the blood goes to the brain and masculinizes the brain. But sometimes that doesn't occur typically and brain sex or gender can develop in discordance or not matching uh, the genetic sex or the gonadal sex. And so this is an issue of brain sexual differentiation. So we're talking about homosexuality or bisexuality or heterosexuality and also gender identity and butch femme, those sort of aspects of a person's personality, which is different to the typical DSD. When we talk about DSDs or disorders of sex development, that is focusing on the gonads and the external genitalia. Brain sex and sexuality are a different category. Now, getting back to what DSD is, as we've hinted at, it actually refers to a variety of conditions that result in differences in the sex chromosomes, the gonads, and all the genitalia that aren't typical of male or female phenotypes. Craig mentioned the terms masculinization and feminization. This might include things like in a genetic female having an enlarged clitoris that starts to look a bit more like a penis, or having fusion of the labia so that they look more like a scrotum. In a male, it could include an opening of the urethra on the underside of the penis, known as hyperspadias, or having testes that haven't descended all the way down into the scrotum, known as undescended testes. Although, some of these features can occur in isolation and may not actually be related to a true DSD. An example of this is undescended testes. Sometimes in premature babies, the testes haven't actually had time to descend properly down into the scrotum, and we wouldn't consider this a DSD. The other thing to note is when we pick up DSDs. The features that I've discussed of having an enlarged clitoris or infused labia, they may be referred to as ambiguous genitalia and are usually detected when a baby is born. But if the differences are in the internal genitalia, those DSDs may not be picked up until puberty or even when an individual begins planning a family. So related to all the steps that we discussed in development of an individual's phenotype, If those steps occur a bit differently, that's when we start producing all the different types of DSD that can occur. How common is intersex? Well, because DSD encompasses so many different conditions, it's a little bit hard to give an overall incidence, but it's probably around one in four and a half to five and a half thousand. This means that it is considered a rare condition, But when we think about how many babies are being born each year all over the world, that's a lot of babies who could have DSD impact them and their families. That's right, Georgie. And, you know, one of the first questions that people ask when a baby is born is, is it a boy or a girl? And so sometimes the answer is not clear. And DSDs can be very difficult for parents and and the babies that it impacts upon. And it can have ongoing psychosocial or medical or sexual effects for those individuals that are affected. When people are pregnant, they usually go for an ultrasound and a lot of people want to find out the sex of their child at the appropriate time frame. But what you're saying is that it's very difficult to actually determine the sex just visually because what you might think is a penis might actually be an enlarged clitoris is what you're saying. So how do these conditions actually occur then? If we think back to how Michelle was discussing how embryos and fetuses develop and all the steps that are involved, if things go differently at any of those steps, that's when we can produce different DSDs. 
starting at the chromosomal level, we can have some DSDs that are related to the chromosomes that are present. In the case of Turner syndrome, that is in individuals that are 45 with one X chromosome, so not the two X chromosomes as is more typical, those individuals actually develop reasonably normal ovaries, although they are infertile because of the lack of the second X chromosome, and they have certain cognitive and behavioral and anatomical uh, variations. In the case of Klinefelter syndrome, instead of 46XY, we have 47XXY, so an extra X chromosome. And again, because of the Y chromosome, these individuals typically develop testes because of the SRY gene on that Y chromosome. But the presence of two Xs interferes with normal development of the testis so that testosterone levels are lower. Uh, these individuals are also infertile, uh, as are Turner individuals, and they tend to be tall in stature and have breast development due to the lower level of testosterone. So Turner syndrome and Klinefelter syndrome, although they don't affect the early development of the gonads per se, are associated with reproductive phenotypes in terms of infertility. In the case of 46XY DSD, the individual is genetically XY, but develops either gonads that don't form testes or ovarian development. And in this case, in many cases, this is due to a defective or a mutated SRY gene. So testes don't form typically, therefore there's no testes, there's no testosterone. The external genitalia develop in the female mode and female development occurs. Now that occurs in about 20% of 46XY DSD cases. And there are a couple of other genes in the pathway that are known to be mutated or changed in the case of 46XY DSD. But for around 70% of cases, we don't know the underlying molecular basis. And so a lot of research here at Monash and at other hospitals and teaching hospitals around the world is looking to discover the mutations involved in 46XY DSD. In the case of 46XX DSD, an individual is genetically female, if I can use that term, XX, but is masculinized. And in most of those cases are due to a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where the adrenal gland has a mutation or a change in a gene that produces the protein that is defective, and it results in abnormally high testosterone levels. So this is in an XX individual developing as an embryo. And so this masculinizes the external genitalia and presumably also the brain. So most cases of 46XXDSD are due to this condition, CAH, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Other cases of 46XXDSD can be due to an addition of the SRY gene onto the X chromosome. So that's an aberrant or abnormal event. And this, because SRY, as we mentioned, is involved in testis formation, the individual that is genetically XX will form testes during embryonic development due to that key SRY gene. And hence, uh, they exhibit 46XX DSD. So they're masculinized. I mentioned the importance of the SRY gene, the master sex gene or testis gene in humans. Once that gene is there, it sets in train that whole cascade of genetic and hormonal pathways resulting in testosterone production, resulting in DHT uh, action and masculinization. The one um, difference here is that those individuals tend to be sterile or infertile because you need more than just the SRY gene on the Y chromosome to make sperm. And in the case of 46XXDSD, where SRY is being added to the X, those other Y genes aren't there. So spermatogenesis does not occur, that's sperm production. 
and in addition, 2X chromosomes are also incompatible with normal sperm production. So these may be the families who don't find out that someone's 46XX until they start family planning. And right. And they realize they have fertility problems. Yep, that's right. That's when these uh, individuals are often picked up. There are a couple more DSDs that relate to issues with testosterone and dihydrotestosterone. And two of these such conditions are 5-alpha reductase deficiency and androgen insensitivity syndrome. I'll start with 5-alpha reductase deficiency. This is a condition in which 46XY individuals have a problem in converting testosterone to DHT. As we discussed before, DHT is needed to help produce the typically male external genitalia. So without the DHT, these males become more sort of feminized, so much so that many of these individuals appear outwardly typically female and their DSD isn't detected until puberty when virilization or development of male characteristics begins to occur. So in this case, the testosterone is functioning and it is viable and so therefore internal genitalia forms as male. However, DHT isn't functioning so the external genitalia looks more female. I read uh, about a study that was conducted on some Pacific Island uh, populations that have a 5-alpha reductase deficiency. And so many people in that population, when they are XY individuals, develop external genitalia, look feminized. And so they are raised and they're brought up as girls. And then at puberty, the 5-alpha reductase uh, activity increases and DHT is produced and the external genitalia become masculinized, and so they change outwardly, if you like, from uh, being treated as female to males. The last DSD that we'll mention is androgen insensitivity syndrome. This time, the difference here is that there's a faulty testosterone receptor. We can think about testosterone acting like a key in a lock. The key is the testosterone, the lock is the receptor. In androgen insensitivity syndrome, the key, or the testosterone, is fine, but the lock is faulty. The key doesn't work to open the door. In these individuals who are 46XY, despite having normal testosterone levels, the testosterone can't actually work to produce the male characteristics. Thus, these individuals have a typically female appearance, and this condition usually isn't detected until puberty when the girl doesn't begin her periods, known as primary amenorrhea. And this is because there isn't actually a uterus or ovaries present. And there are individuals that can have partial androgen insensitivity syndrome as well, I should mention. That's PAIS, where the testosterone has some effect, but not a typical effect, where the receptor, the lock key that Georgie mentioned, the receptor for the testosterone, androgen receptor, functions suboptimally, so not typically. So you can get partial androgen insensitivity in individuals that are otherwise 46XY. So in the case of the analogy, the door might slightly open, but not large enough that the normal amount of dihydrotestosterone is produced. That's right. You may see in these individuals partial uh, feminization of the external genitalia or a partial feminization effects in the brain. So mm. we don't know to what extent that can happen. To summarize to this point, some people presume that an individual's sex and gender can be determined simply by looking at their genes or chromosomes, and that it's a dichotomous situation. But it appears this isn't the case, and it's much more complex than that, and more likely DSDs fall along a spectrum. From a medical perspective, 
Are there any specific treatments that we can offer to people who have DSDs? The answer to that is it depends, and it depends on a lot of things. It depends on the particular DSD that is present individual, but also we've described the differences between sex and gender. Some of the ways these individuals will be treated will be determined by which gender they feel most aligned with. More generally, in terms of health, some of the DSDs can have some impacts on an individual's health beyond that of their reproductive anatomy. So, for example, steroids like testosterone have impacts on our bone health. So if there are deficiencies in either testosterone or estrogen, this can lead to a thinning of the bones known as osteoporosis, which can predispose people to fractures or breaks of their bones. So there are different medications and hormones that are used to improve people's bone health if that is needed. We've touched on that some of the DSDs will have an impact on fertility. So if someone's with a DSD is starting to plan a family, that might be a point where they need to seek some medical attention for assisted reproductive technologies. So it really sounds like somebody with DSD may need multiple practitioners to help them move forward. So this could include psychologists and psychiatrists. It could include medical doctors from a variety of different specialties. Yeah, that's right, Michelle. Surgery for people with DSDs is something we should probably touch on but it is a very controversial area. It also interplays with the fact that as a society, we're very used to gender and sex seeming dichotomous. And a lot of people want to put people into a category of either male or female and make a decision around that. But sometimes it's hard to know which way to go when it's just a baby. And in fact, I think historically, if it was gender ambiguous external genitalia, they often decided to make the child or the newborn a female because there wasn't enough tissue to make a phallus. So sometimes it's based on the need to put somebody in a category early prior to the anatomical support to make a decision. Hmm. What that didn't take into account was the brain sex that Craig was talking about before. So just because it's easier to make an individual's genitalia look more like a typical male or a typical female that ignores their brain sex and the gender that they align with. So as Michelle said, the management of babies or humans with disorders of sex development requires a multidisciplinary team of pediatricians, endocrinologists, psychologists, psychiatrists. At the moment in Australia, individuals that are born with DSDs typically have surgery so that the external genitalia changed to match usually the chromosomal sex. And this is a very controversial and emotive area. So there are advantages and disadvantages of that approach of conducting the surgery. Firstly, uh, it's easier to do such surgery on newborn babies rather than later in development, such as at puberty. Uh, then the, the second advantage of that is that the child can then be raised as a particular sex, a, a dichotomous sex without any ambiguity. Thirdly, uh, it treats the issue of potential gonadal cancers. So there's a, a cancer risk around 19%. Is that a high risk? Maybe. So 19% for individuals with DSDs. And so if the gonads are removed and the external genitalia operated on to become either female or male, that can be an advantage to the individual. And a recent study conducted at the Royal Children's Hospital, well, maybe not so recent, a few years ago now, looked at the long-term outcomes for individuals that had this external genital surgery as babies 
and the majority of them were happy uh, with their life and their development, although they reported some various aspects of sexual dysfunction. Now, the flip side to this argument, there is a small but vocal DSD advocacy group that claim that this issue of surgery is a human rights issue and that no surgery should be conducted on babies born with DSDs and that there should be a moratorium on all surgery and that the individual, the baby, should decide what they want done when they are old enough and uh, reach an appropriate age, such as puberty. So they're a small but vocal group within the DSD community. And so sometimes when surgery is done, as Georgie mentioned, the brain sex may not match the sex that the surgeons have decided and the parents have decided. And so should we be doing that to an individual? Perhaps not. Perhaps the individual should be making that choice themselves when they are at an appropriate age. There is uh, a website for people with DSDs and for their families and for doctors and also for researchers. And that was set up by a group here in Australia that study DSDs in humans and animal models. And that is dsdgenetics.org. So if you check out that website, uh, it has a lot of interesting information on DSDs, how they occur, why they occur, and where people can get more information. You will definitely find that link on the website associated with this podcast. So many cases of DSDs don't have a clear diagnosis genetically. So many cases are due to the SRY gene that I mentioned and some other genes in the pathway, but many cases don't have a clear molecular diagnosis. And so it's important that we continue research in this area to uncover new genes that may be involved in DSDs, not to fix or cure, in inverted commas, individuals, but to empower them and give them information about the molecular basis of their DSD and how their DSD might be managed. So it sounds like DSDs and sex determination is really an interplay between culture, society, individuals' brains, anatomy, and genetics. That's all we have time for today, but clearly there's more to be discussed on this topic. I want to thank my interdisciplinary team for joining me today. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter, so if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag anatq.